0: Last week, uh, we talked about 12 marks of a healthy church. We are talking about ecclesiology, and one of the things we talked about last uh, week is that every church, in some sense, has areas of disorder, areas where they are more or less healthy. And uh, and so uh, we talked about 12 marks that kind of uh, would help us to discern those churches that are more healthy than uh, than others. But then we also talked about Kind of what is a mark of a church? How do you distinguish a, uh, a, an actual Christian church from a cult, from another religion, from a parachurch ministry, whatever it might be? And, uh, and so we talked about historically, there's one main mark of a church, and then there's kind of two other supplemental marks of a church. The, the one main mark, if you get this right, everything else kind of falls into uh, line is the correct preaching of the word. As long as you're doing that, everything else is kind of a domino that follows uh, after that. Uh, but in addition to the correct preaching of the word, the uh, the reformers, <coughs> excuse me, in particular, uh, kind of focused on these two other marks of the church. One is the correct administration of the sacraments. Or, uh, or ordinances, they mean the same thing, sacraments or ordinances. So baptism and communion. We're going to talk about both of those here in the next few weeks. So we're not going to talk about that today, but the other one, the other the third mark of a, a healthy or, or just a church in general, according to the reformers, was the correct preaching of the word, the correct administration of the sacraments, and then a correct administration of church discipline. And that's what we're talking about uh, today. And so I want to begin with this sort of brief summary or survey, of church history as it relates to the issue of uh, church discipline and so one of the things that you will see is you kind of see this pattern throughout church history of faithfulness in regards to church discipline followed by periods of unfaithfulness followed by faithfulness and so it kind of ebbs and flows as we look at it uh, historically so beginning in the patristic area uh, the era that is the uh, the era of the church fathers you have this sort of really strong uh, emphasis on church discipline in light of their strong desire uh, to be holy, their strong desire to follow the apostles' teachings. And uh, and so you have this uh, emphasis on church discipline, and in particular, the final step of church discipline that we'll talk about, which is excommunication. And so when someone was excommunicated from the church in the patristic era, that is roughly 100 A.D. to 500 A.D., you have that they are forbid from services, they're forbid from community, and, uh, and from communion. And you have this really interesting thing that at the point where they begin to express repentance, the church kind of uh, begins this sort of proving period this testing ground and says, okay, if you're truly repentant, then what you will uh, do is you will demonstrate that. You will evidence that by, uh, by your life and, uh, and works. And so there would be a period of time where that person was not allowed in the church. Uh, after a period of time, they could come into the service, but they couldn't then take communion. So that's how uh, church discipline kind of functioned within the patristic era. Within the medieval period, you see even more of this sort of ebb and, uh, and flow. In particular, you have this uh, sort of the rise of the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, along with that, you have this sort of the rise of the public nature of the church, and so you have this sort of diminishing, um, diminishing sort of practice of church discipline, because one thing that the medieval Roman Catholic Church did not like is scandal and shame. And, uh, and so you have this movement away from public church discipline to private discipline in the form of penance and uh, confession to a priest and these sorts of things. So whereas church discipline originally is intended to be this communal thing where the entire corporate body is engaged in calling this sinner away from its sin... You have that kind of replaced by this more private expression, where it's a a a person, and then they are just simply uh, engaged with a a a priest uh, in uh, in private. Then, in the Reformation period, you have this restoration of corporate uh, church discipline uh, with three aims: to preserve the sanctity of God's uh, name and uh, to preserve the sanctity of the church that God encourages and and requires His people, beckons His people to holiness, and uh, and then also a corrective measure to call a sinner to repentance and to save uh, their soul. And then you move into the modern era, and you have this sort of hodgepodge uh, depending upon your tradition, depending upon your individual church, whatever it might be, your denomination. uh, It may or may not have practiced church discipline. Many uh, Protestant churches practiced uh, church discipline uh, w- uh, up until around the mid-1800s or so. But you'll see around 1850s, you see the, uh, the church in general from the 1850s to the early 1900s became, uh, became less uh, intent, less um, uh, sort of uh, desirous to, to kind of reform themselves, and their attention began to turn towards reforming society. So this is whenever you get things like temperance and prohibition. Uh, you get the, the, the uh, society says, instead of dealing with people who struggle with drunkenness within the church, we're going to forbid uh, all alcohol in society at large. Or you get to also Sabbatarian reform. So raise your hand if you grew up in a time where there was at least some blue laws still on the books right, where you couldn't buy cars, you couldn't go to certain restaurants, nothing was open on Sundays. That's because of this influence from the early uh, or mid-1800s through the early 1900s. And, uh, and so you see, again, this sort of waning of churches practicing church discipline because their focus turned from being inward and reforming ourselves in light of God's Word to trying to reform the larger uh, society. And, uh, and so since then, church discipline has just waned in general. It's not that uh, you will have many preachers throughout history that stand up and say you shouldn't do church discipline. It's just something that becomes completely neglected. Uh, it just kind of falls out of our uh, vocabulary. And, uh, and so there is this slight uptick over the past 20 years or so where churches seemed uh, to be kind of uh, being reformed in this area and are uh, beginning to practice church discipline again. But in general, this is still not the, the, the sort of the major practice of, uh, of most churches. And so most churches that you attend are not going to be faithful to practice uh, church discipline. And there's a number of reasons for that that I we'll want to just uh, briefly walk through. The first one is just a sort of biblical ignorance. This is probably could categorize all of these different uh, reasons that churches don't do uh, discipline is because they simply don't know what the Bible says about it or don't understand uh, what the Bible says about it. The second reason related to that is a suspicion of authority, suspicion of authority of elders, thinking that elders use church discipline in order to abuse others or whatever it might be, or suspicion of the authority of Scripture uh, itself that uh, I think a lot of people in the modern evangelical sort of church think of Scripture kind of like a a recipe. So imagine getting your mother's or your grandmother's recipe, and you have the kind of freedom if you get a recipe to kind of tinker with it, right? Like maybe they used a couple of tablespoons of sugar, but yet if you want to use three or if you want to use four, if you want to use one or whatever it might be, you have freedom to do that. That's how a lot of people think of Scripture. It's kind of a general guidebook. It's a recipe. You don't have to follow it uh, precisely, though, and so the church has kind of lost this prophetic edge where we get to just stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. And there's this expectation that people would know that this is a command of the Lord. Another reason that a number of churches don't do discipline is because they've never seen it done before. So they think, that's not the way my church did it. That's not the way my family did it. That's not the way my denomination did it, or whatever uh, it might be. Or I've seen it done before, but it's done really poorly. I've seen it abused. I've seen someone really hurt by the process of church discipline. But we've mentioned this phrase uh, in a number of different contexts, that abuse doesn't negate proper use. The fact that somebody can abuse something doesn't mean that we simply get rid of that thing. People abuse the gift of sex. That doesn't mean we get rid of marriage. People abuse Cars, they drink and drive, whatever it might be. That doesn't mean we all have to walk everywhere. So, abuse doesn't negate proper use. Likewise, the fact that some churches abuse the process of church discipline doesn't mean we then abandon the process of church discipline. Another reason is that we don't want to appear judgmental. The problem with that is the Bible explicitly commands us to judge each other. We'll see that uh, here pretty shortly. If you don't want to be judged by the church, then don't be a Christian. That's what the Bible would say. Or maybe we don't practice church discipline because we're obsessed with numbers. Churches are too concerned about getting people in the front door that they would ever let any be pushed out the back door. They're motivated by fear, fear of losing members, losing money, losing friends, fear of the media, whatever it might be. Or maybe some churches just have a misunderstanding of justification by faith. The Bible says we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and yet the Bible would also say that faith is transformative. It's restorative uh, in nature. And so we don't sort of have this idea that uh, you can have your faith and yet still coddle sin, yet still go and get drunk and cheat on your spouse and look at pornography or whatever it might be. That's not faith. That's something else entirely. That's a facade. Related to that, a misunderstanding of grace and, uh, and legalism. I can't tell you the, how many churches that we've called uh, in the past where uh, maybe there's a member who's been disciplined by a church, and so they, we then find out they're going to this other church, just kind of running from the process. And so we call that other church and let them know, hey, this person has consistently cheated on their spouse. They've consistently lied. They've consistently done all these things. We have put them under church discipline, and that pastor says, I'm just going to give them grace. That's not grace. That's not love. We'll talk about uh, those uh, shortly. the The fact that discipline is loving, discipline is grace. But the last reason is rampant individualism. There's this huge evangelical misunderstanding of church, this huge misunderstanding of ecclesiology that Christians don't care if they're kicked out of a church. Why not? Because they'll just go to another one. Church discipline worked really well. 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, because if you got kicked out of that church, you're basically out of the society. There is one church in a lot of these uh, different uh, cities and towns and that kind of stuff. Now, you just simply drive. I mean, you, you go down Virginia Parkway, two miles either direction, and you will run into something like 25 churches. We counted it at some point. And so, what do I care if I get kicked out of this church? I'll just go to another one. Or maybe uh, related to that, maybe you don't want to practice church discipline because it's just exhausting. Think about how much time and energy uh, and capital it takes in order to call someone to repentance. I'd rather just sit around and watch reruns of Parks and Rec or whatever it might be. And so uh, all of these different reasons why uh, church discipline is historically on, uh, on the wane and, uh, and so uh, individual churches might struggle with uh, some more than others. But let's talk, what is discipline in the first place? Well, there's two types of discipline that you could uh, uh, kind of walk through. The first one is formative discipline, and the second one is corrective discipline. Uh, just in general, you have discipline as a, uh, as a heading, and then under that you have two subheadings. You have formative and you have corrective discipline. These are the two types of discipline. Formative discipline is what we're doing right now. In a sense, everyone in this room has undergone church discipline. This is a form of church discipline. And that dis- discipline, you even see it there uh, in the same word, is discipleship. And so there's formative discipline. That's what we're doing right now. and It's what we'll do as we gather together to sing. It's what we do as we gather together to hear God's Word preached. Uh, it's what we do as we gather together in community groups. It's, uh, it's formative. It's, it's uh, being discipled reminded of what God's Word says on a particular topic. Corrective discipline, on the other hand, means that you're being rebuked. You're being corrected for something that is out of order. So, all discipleship is basically discipline. It's either formative or corrective discipline. Imagine being a doctor. Your uh, kind of work involves both of these sort of formative and corrective procedures, right? And so, uh, so, Dr. Steve's here, and he's a dentist, and so part of his job as a dentist is he's encouraging these formative disciplines like brushing your teeth and flossing and, uh, and so forth. But there's also times where he has to do corrective discipline, right? He has to give a root canal. He has to pull a tooth, whatever it might be there's both this formative and then also this corrective sort of activity likewise uh, in the church. And when we talk about church discipline, what most people think of is not the formative aspect of it. They think of the corrective aspect of it. That's what most people tend to think of whenever they think of church discipline. They think of that process uh, that we see outlined in a number of scriptures uh, that is going to be the correction of of errant behavior, of, uh, of unholy behavior in the life of a, uh, a believer. Something is wrong, and so we need to address it. And so it's kind of like surgery or medication. It's like pulling a tooth or giving a root canal or whatever uh, it might be. And so we're going to address this sort of corrective nature. But first, what we need to do is we need to understand discipline in general. Because if we can see that discipline in general is loving discipline in general, is gracious, it's much easier for us to then fit church discipline under that greater category. It's really hard to understand church discipline as being loving and gracious and kind and all of those sorts of things if you think discipline in general is unloving or ungracious or unkind. And so we need to cultivate a healthy biblical view of discipline in order to have a healthy biblical view of church discipline so let me encourage you, go and read the book of Proverbs. We're not going to walk through all of these uh, today, but just a couple of, uh, of, uh, of references. Proverbs 13, 24, "...whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him." So again, the idea that discipline is unloving doesn't pass the test of Scripture. Proverbs nineteen eighteen: "...discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death." What is putting him to death? It's not disciplining him. That's putting him to death. In all of these, we see the good of discipline. Again, there's there's dozens of other passages in the book of Proverbs, not just the book of Proverbs. Consider uh, Hebrews chapter uh, 12. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. So you see a number of things here in, uh, in this passage. The first one being that discipline is a result of love. The Lord disciplines the one He loves. In fact, the, uh, this text says that discipline is an evidence of His love. That if you're left without discipline, that's not love, that's not grace, that's not kindness. In the context of the uh, Scripture, to be left without God's love is His wrath to you. We saw that in Romans 1, that God turns you over to your sin. That's not love, that's wrath. It's like a parent who allows their kid to jam a knife into an electrical outlet or to play with a bottle of poison. That isn't love, that isn't grace. The second thing you see here is that discipline is temporarily unpleasant. So you may encounter in the process of church discipline, if we have to go through that as a body, we've gone through it before, we probably will have to go through it again in the next 20, 30, 40 years, whatever it might be. So if you go through that and you see and you think this is harsh, that's kind of the point. It's intended to be unpleasant. That it doesn't feel good. The pain is the point. It's like spanking your child. You ever spank your child too soft and they just kind of laugh at you? Have they learned their lesson in that moment? What lesson did they just learn? It's not that bad. Why not? I can remember as a kid, I can remember there were times where my parents would uh, spank me. They wouldn't spank me that hard, or they'd only spank me one time. And I can remember consciously thinking, this particular act of disobedience, is it worth it? And it might be worth it in a certain case to have that one thing that you really want might be worth the, uh, the actual pain. And so the, the fact that there's pain is kind of the point. It should hurt a little bit. A spanking of a child should hurt, and likewise with church discipline. That's the point. Third, you see that discipline is ultimately fruitful and good. There's a hope. There's a goal. It's not merely punitive. It's corrective. It's restorative. My goal in spanking Larkin if she runs out in the street or if she jams a knife into an outlet or whatever it might be, is that she would never do that again because I love her and I don't want her to be destroyed. I don't want her to be hurt. I don't want her to die. The goal isn't her humiliation, but that she might repent, that she might turn, that she might have life and joy and all those kinds of things. And then lastly, you see that discipline is a community project. There's a command for us to see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and to strive for peace with everyone and so forth. In other words, I bear responsibility for you and you bear responsibility for me not merely by virtue of the fact that I'm an elder, but simply as a fellow member of the body. I'm not above the body or anything. I'm a member of this body. I have a responsibility towards you. You have a responsibility toward me. And so we've talked about this before. You have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You do not have a private relationship with Jesus Christ. There is no such thing as a private relationship with Jesus Christ. When you are called into union with Christ, you are also called into union with His body and Bride, so we have a responsibility to love, to serve, to encourage, and to even correct and rebuke each other. Galatians 6, 1-2 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. James five nineteen 19-20 My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Or Hebrews 3, 12 through 14, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So discipline cannot simply be done by the leaders of the church, the elders, the staff, the deacons, whatever it might be. It takes the entire congregation to kind of express the gravity, the severity of sin. So you have to believe these things. You have to believe these things. If church discipline, as we get into the process in Matthew 18, if this is going to make sense, you have to understand first this overarching larger picture, the forest of discipline, before you can understand the particular tree that is, uh, is church discipline, because if you don't understand discipline, then church discipline will never make sense. It'll never be seen as a good and godly and beautiful thing. But let's get into the, uh, the actual process. We've spent uh, 25 minutes and haven't even actually got to church discipline. So Matthew 18, 15 through 18, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Uh, from this uh, we kind of can draw out implications for uh, church discipline. The first one is we're talking about sin. That's what Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, the church doesn't have the right to define what is and isn't morally right or wrong. God's Word defines what is right and wrong, and our job is to apply it accordingly. This means a couple of things for us. One, it means that we don't discipline for what we've called over the past few weeks audiophora issues, playing cards, drinking, dancing, getting a tattoo, etc. If you aren't familiar with the concept of adiaphora issues, go back and listen to our sermons from Romans 14. You may not uh, necessarily agree with all the different uh, categories, what we've said is adiaphora, but uh, at least the concept you can grasp there. So we don't discipline for these sort of non-sinful, morally neutral issues. Second, this also means that we should have some degree of of, uh, being cautious when it comes to internal sins like pride or greed and so forth, where there's no kind of smoking gun. In other words, the less overt, the less obvious the sin, the more difficult it's going to be to get the entire church to understand and appreciate the severity of the sin, which is why you don't tend to see a lot of churches practicing discipline for sins like gossip or gluttony or pride. It's kind of less obvious. It's maybe somewhat more subjective. I'm not saying that we should never discipline in those particular cases. I'm just saying that we need to tread carefully, that we aren't mistaken. So you see, some churches discipline for things that aren't actually sinful. Other churches ignore things that actually are sinful. Both extremes should be avoided. So that's the first observation. We're talking about actual sin. And the second one is to notice the escalation. You go one-on-one, and then you go two or three-on-one, and then an entire church-on-one. I spent most of the day Friday pulling weeds. That's not a fun process. Sometimes you get one that comes up really easily. Other times you get one that seems like it's kind of super glued to the earth, right? And you just pull and you pull and you pull and you just can't get it. And so imagine that uh, sin is like that root, right? Even in, uh, in uh, Hebrews, we saw that sin is like a root of bitterness. And, uh, and so uh, imagine that sin is like that. Some you can kind of pull up yourself. Others, you need another pair of hands, kind of pulling on that. And sometimes it's, it's so stuck there that you need the entire church pulling up. That's the escalation that, uh, uh, that uh, Matthew 18 is uh, talking about, that, the, uh, uh, that there's this escalation, the more stubborn the root proves to be. Now, escalation itself is never the goal, It's never the hope. It's never the hope to simply go to more and more and more people. The hope is always immediate repentance. You go one-on-one, and if there's repentance, there's no escalation. It doesn't need to go beyond that. You don't need to bring it up again. It's forgiven. It's in the past. But if there's no repentance, then there is escalation. But notice, it's the person who refuses to repent who chooses the escalation. It's not that the church simply says, you know what? We're going to air this person's laundry. It's not that the church says, we're going to kick this person out. It's that the person, by their obstinance, by their stubbornness, by their lack of repentance, says, I need you to escalate this. This sin is too deeply rooted in my heart. I need more and more hands pulling on that. And in fact, we'll see that uh, unrepentance is ultimately what gets you kicked out of the church. It's not the original sin. If a man cheats on his spouse, and then uh, he is uh, engaged... In the process of church discipline, he fails to listen to rebuke. It isn't the adultery itself that gets him, uh, that causes the escalation. It's the failure to repent. Christians are going to sin, but there's an expectation that when Christians sin, there is repentance, there's remorse, there's regret. And a lack of that is what causes the escalation. So it begins one on one. This implies a, a couple of things. First, one, that you have a responsibility to do this, if you know that a brother or sister is engaged in some sort of habitual, ongoing, uh, obvious sin and you fail to act, then you have sinned. Not only against the Lord, but you've also sinned against that person. You said, I don't love you enough to correct you. I don't love you enough to rebuke you. Secondly, it means that you don't escalate until you've exhausted this process. Jesus says, go one-on-one. That's the beginning. There are a couple of rare exceptions where someone's safety uh, might, uh, might be at stake. But other than that, you have responsibility. You don't go and you gossip. You don't go and share this with your community group. You don't go and tell uh, the elders or tell another elder or whatever it is. You go one-on-one to the person that is in sin. You have responsibility to do so. This is a command, not a suggestion. It might end there. Hopefully, it ends there. You go to someone one-on-one. They repent. Most church discipline never escalates. A brother or sister is rebuked. They're corrected. They're admonished. They heed the, uh, the word. They repent. And thus ends that case of discipline. But suppose they refuse to listen. They say, I know that I shouldn't be causing division. I know that I shouldn't be getting drunk. I know that I shouldn't be looking at pornography. I know that I shouldn't be cheating on my spouse. But I don't care. I know what the Bible says. I just don't care. Then it escalates. The root is too deep for one-on-one, so you need to take someone else with you. So Jesus says, take one or two people with you and try again. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean you go one-on-one, and then immediately the very next meeting you have to go two or three-on-one, and then the very next meeting you tell it to the church. You might go one-on-one three times or four times or five times. If there's some sort of willingness to listen to you, some sort of willingness to consider what you're saying. If the person walks away and say, you know what, you might be right. Give me a couple of days to think about it, pray about it. Okay, you might do that. And then you might go one-on-one again. So it's not like there's some sort of a wooden process here, but eventually it has to escalate if there's no repentance. And Hopefully there is repentance. The person now has two or three people that are together kind of pulling on that root, trying to uh, uproot that stubborn sin. And so maybe the person is a little bit more likely to listen, as he knows this isn't just personal opinion or something like that. There's now two or three or four people that are all engaged in saying, hey man, turn. What are you doing? What are you doing in this particular case? Why aren't you willing to listen and heed God's Word? So hopefully there's repentance, but if not, it escalates again. And at that point, the escalation is what uh, Jesus calls telling it to the church. It's time for the entire church to kind of use their collective weight to pull against that uh, sin and to implore and to warn. And so Jesus has to tell it to the church. Now it doesn't tell us how. The Bible doesn't actually prescribe how you do it. Here at Parkway, we tend to use the context of a member uh, meeting, but you could make a case for maybe emailing the members or uh, maybe doing it in a uh, corporate worship service. The reason we don't do it in a worship service is because on any individual week, we have a number of non-members, whether they are regular attendees or um, uh, visitors or something like that. And This is kind of family information, and so we don't want to air the dirty laundry uh, in front of non-members. So we use member meetings, but it doesn't say explicitly how. It just says that you tell it to the church. Now notice there the reference to church. What a lot of churches do is they just simply tell it to the staff and the elders. But remember what we talked about. When we say the word church, what Greek word is that? Anybody remember? Ekklesia. It means the gathering. It means the congregation. So when it says tell it to the church, it says tell it to the gathering. Tell it to the congregation. Not simply tell it to the leaders, Not simply tell it to the pastors or the elders. It says tell it to the church, tell it to the congregation, tell it to the people. And that's not the final step. Some churches kind of do that. They kind of alert the church, they tell the church, this member has been kicked out. That's not what the Bible is saying. That's kind of an inversion, a reversal of the order is that hopefully by telling it to the church, the person doesn't have to be kicked out because when you tell it to the church, now you have, instead of three or four hands pulling on that root of sin, you now have 50 or 100 or whatever it might be. And you have the church collectively, corporately praying for that person and meeting with that person and saying, repent, man, turn. Don't go down this road. And the hope is, again, that he will repent, that he will listen to the full weight of community calling to repentance. Maybe the shame, maybe the humiliation of having their sin and lack of repentance exposed will drive them to repentance. But if not, then Jesus says, if they don't listen even to the church, to the corporate body, then we are to let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. We'll walk through that shortly, but first I want to look at that Last verse, so skip over, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector, and look at the last verse there. He says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. In other words, in some sort of imperfect sense, our discipline is a reflection of God's eternal perspective. Discipline is about more than just membership in an individual local church it is a reflection of membership in the universal church. In other words, being kicked out of a church is a big deal. It's a sign, as your membership in this individual church is removed, it's a sign that you are not a member of the universal church. You are not a member of the body and bride of Christ. Can churches get that wrong? Absolutely. That happens all the time. But it is a big deal nonetheless. The way that someone responds uh, to that will oftentimes evidence whether or not that was a correct judgment. What's happening in that moment is the church is taking away that member's passport to the kingdom of God. They're saying, we can no longer put our stamp of approval that this person loves Jesus and trusts Jesus and believes the gospel. Again, the church might be wrong, but in that moment, that's what's happening. We know that that person isn't acting like a believer, and so we have no assurance that they are a believer. We can't give our stamp of approval on their faith. So it's a big deal. Discipline is thus, this, this word you might not be familiar with, proleptic. It's anticipatory of final judgment. The church judges someone in order to warn them if they keep going down this road, they will face Christ's severer judgment. Let me give you kind of an illustration of this. Uh, imagine that you're in school, and you take a quiz, and you fail it. And you take a second quiz, and you fail it. And you take a third quiz and you fail it. And you take a fourth quiz and you fail it. At the end of the semester, should you expect that you're going to pass the class? No, right? There's an expectation because you have failed all of these different quizzes along the way, all of these different exams and tests along the way, you're going to actually fail the class. Well, likewise, if you habitually, if you unrepentantly, if you apathetically sin, you should have no expectation that you're going to pass Christ's judgment because you're not acting like a believer at least, the teacher's red marks on your paper, the teacher's big F with a circle over it, that is a grace to you. That's a warning to you that unless something is amended in your behavior, that you're not going to pass. But imagine that that teacher doesn't do that, doesn't tell you you're failing, doesn't give you any red marks. There's no parent-teacher conference, no F on your paper, just a smiley face sticker. That's all. You have no warning that you're in danger. That's like a church that fails to do discipline. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. In some sense, what happens in the local church is a reflection of the bigger uh, activity of the universal church. Again, local churches can get it wrong, but there's still meaning there. So what does it mean when Jesus says, Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector? We have an entire blog on our website on that subject, and so it's creatively called Let Him Be to You as a Gentile and Tax Collector." So I'd encourage you to read that. There's two ways to take this phrase. Unfortunately, those two ways are contradictory, right? Those two ways can't both be correct. One is correct, the other is wrong, or logically they both could be uh, incorrect. But um, uh, there's two different ways to take that. They are contradictory. The problem is the way that most people assume that the or, or what most people assume the text means is definitely contextually not what it means. In other words, the most common interpretation of this passage is wrong. Here's the the way that most people think that uh, this passage uh, should be taken. Most people assume. That when Jesus says, let him be to you as a tax collector or a a Gentile or a tax collector, this means that we treat this unrepentant person like we would treat any other unbeliever, that we hang out with them, that we take them out to eat, that we invite them over for dinner, etc. That's what most people think this passage means. The second way, I think the more faithful way to take it, is that Jesus is telling a group of first-century Jews to treat this person like any first-century Jew would have treated a Gentile or tax collector. In other words, don't hang out with them. Don't associate with them. Don't invite them over. Don't take them out to dinner. As you can see, they're absolutely contradictory, the different ways of taking it. One way of interpreting it encourages you to eat with and to hang out with the person who has gone through the entire process of church discipline, while the other one explicitly commands you not to do so, which means that if we misinterpret this, then we'll actually do the opposite of what Christ commands us to do. So how do we know which one is correct? Well, the first rule of hermeneutics is what? Yeah, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Anytime we get to a passage of Scripture, we don't know what it means. You should, in general, look at other Scriptures. God's Word never contradicts itself, and so allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And we have a wealth of passages that help clarify the meaning of, especially in Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since you knew we need to, be, to go out of the world, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or isn't an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So we're dealing with those inside the church. He says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world. So this is referring only to those who profess faith in Christ but are walking in some sort of explicit ongoing sin. We don't do church discipline on unbelievers. And second we're commanded to judge each other. So although it might be sort of culturally appropriate to say, don't judge me, that's not biblically appropriate. God actually commands us to. And what does Paul say to do? He says, not even to associate with, not even to eat with. In fact, to purge the evil person from among you. And this isn't the only place that Paul gives this sort of command. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6, and 14 and 15. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. And then Titus 3, 9 through 11, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So if we want to know what Jesus means when he says, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector, we look at what Paul says. He says not to associate with, not even to eat with, to purge the evil person from among you, to keep away from, and to have nothing to do with. That phrase, having nothing to do with, uh, is one phrase in English, but there's actually two different ways to express it in, uh, in Greek, both of which uh, we see here. So, you see uh, the six different expressions of, uh, of this uh, ultimate state of... Uh, of the discipline, which means that when Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile tax collector, he can't be encouraging you to hang out with a person, to eat with a person, to invite that person to church, to invite that person over to your house, whatever it might be. So what does Jesus mean? He means that if this person hasn't listened to you and hasn't listened to a handful of others and hasn't listened to the entire church call him to repentance, then the sin is so deeply rooted that maybe the only way to uproot it is to allow it to wither in isolation and loneliness. Maybe, just maybe, the loss of friends, the loss of community, the loss of communion, the loss of the grace of gathering with the body, the loss of all of these things will cause them to repent. So we remove them from membership. We remove them from the grace of community. We prohibit them from attending church, from attending classes, from attending community group. We don't hang out with them as if all is well because all isn't well. We might still grab coffee or lunch or something like that, but only with the purpose of calling them to repentance. Now, you again, you might think that sounds unloving. It's only if we redefine love. Love isn't affirmation or acceptance. Love is doing what is ultimately good for someone. Biblically, what's unloving is not discipline, but lack of discipline. It's unloving of you. It's unloving of a church to allow someone who calls themselves a believer to cherish their sin, to treasure their sin, to cling to their sin as if they can simply have their sin and have Jesus. And the hope of this process, again, is that the person would then recognize, even in kicking them out of the church, the hope is still repentance. That they would wither in their isolation and that they would be led to Repentance, that's what we see here, 1 Timothy 1, that they may learn not to blaspheme. 1 Corinthians 5, 4-5, for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. That's the hope. 2 Thessalonians, that he may be ashamed. The hope is that he may be ashamed. There's good and appropriate uses of shame. Some people are ashamed of things that they shouldn't be. They're ashamed of past sins that have already been forgiven. They're ashamed of their looks, whatever it might be. That's inappropriate, unbiblical shame, but there's also appropriate shame. Biblically, we should experience shame when we sin. Shame is what leads us to confession. Shame is what leads us to repentance, which covers our shame. Is the ultimate goal simply shame? Of course not. But that their shame would lead them to repentance. So in the process of removing communion and community, we hope one of two things are going to happen. One, the hope is that there will be this godly sorrow leading to repentance. That's why the approach is so drastic. Why would a sinner turn from their sin if they can have their sin and also have all of the graces, all the benefits of community? Why would my daughter not do that thing I tell her not to do if she knows he's not going to spank me? Or the spanking's not going to hurt that bad, or whatever uh, it might be. Which means that for you to circumvent the process, if there is a member that is under discipline and you decide, you know what, I know the church has disciplined them, but I'm just going to hang out with them. I'm just going to quote-unquote give them grace. I'm just going to quote-unquote love them. And so you go and you decide, you know what, I'm just going to hang out with them. I'm going to invite them over to the Super Bowl. I'm going to invite them over for all of my different things. We're just going to hang out. We're going to be buddies that's kind of like you have a friend who's detoxing from drugs and you just sneak them a little bit of heroin. You sneak them a little bit of meth because that's what they really want. You want to give them grace. All the while you're enabling their sin and you're ultimately leading them toward overdose. That's what it's like for you to circumvent the process, for, for you to continue to associate with someone who has been removed for disciplinary reasons. That's not loving. You're enabling their sin. You're encouraging their condemnation. So the hope is for repentance and restoration. But on the other hand, if it doesn't produce that over time, then maybe it will reveal that that person never really loved and treasured and trusted Jesus in the first place, that they never really understood the gospel, that they simply wanted to get out of hell. They didn't really want to love Jesus. They didn't really want to submit to his word, that they're never really members of the universal church in the first place. So, let me be as clear as possible. You cannot coddle sin and love Jesus. You can't treasure both. You can't have two masters. If you think church discipline is harsh, you don't understand the severity of God's judgment and condemnation. We don't ultimately know if a member who clings to a sin in spite of the process is a believer or not, but we know that he's not acting like a believer. Because believers repent of their sin. That's a sign of belief, is repentance. And if he's not a believer, then he's under divine condemnation that is far harsher and far worse than any of the discomfort that we're putting him through in the process. So this should be a wake-up call for all of us. If you call yourself a Christian, if you're in this room today, you call yourself a Christian, and you're coddling any sin, you have some sort of hidden, unrepentant, habitual sin, whatever it might be, and you're simply coddling it, you're simply treasuring it, you're clinging to it, you're refusing to drag it into the light, let me encourage you that Jesus is better. Whatever that costs you to drag that into the light, if it costs you your work, if it costs you your savings, if it costs you your uh, financial security, if it costs you any of these, your reputation in the church, whatever it might be, Jesus is better And we believe that. And because we believe that and we believe that for you, if you refuse to do that, we love you too much. We love the church's reputation too much. We love the glory of Jesus too much to allow you to forsake your joy and hope and life. And so we will pursue you in loving, gracious discipline. All right, Zach, you want to come up for some Q&A? It's a heavy topic. Zach has a joke for us.
1: Alright. I don't have any jokes. I do have a joke. I have a joke that Tim told us this week. Where's the best place to drown a hipster? In the mainstream. Alright, there you go. That's from Tim. Okay. Now, a few questions. You guys sent in some excellent questions. Here's the, uh, the first one. and. Uh, we will try to answer this together, not like at the same time, like, uh, but back and forth. Do I have to rebuke everyone any time I see them sin? Okay, so I just want to give you some, some brief thoughts on this and then, then kick it over to Jeff. <laughs> when you do church discipline, uh, it's not that you have to rebuke everybody in sin. So first of all, you don't need to be doing that with lost people, okay? You, and maybe this will take a burden off your shoulders. You don't have to correct lost people when they curse around you. You don't have to correct lost people when they're doing all these kind of things. The Bible's actually going to say we don't judge outsiders. We judge those in the church. And so don't feel this weird obligation to make Christians live or non-Christians live like Christians before they are. Uh, You don't do that. Your job is to love them and hang out with them and uh, share Jesus with them that they might become saved, okay? That doesn't mean there's never a time to offer a word of correction, but you don't need to feel this weird burden of being like the uh, moral tone police in your office or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, when it comes to other Christians, a few things to keep in mind. The, the main thing that you're going to actually sit down to rebuke somebody for is when you see this major kind of unrepentant, intentional, maybe it's even like a pattern of sin in their life, I think that's what you do. So, for example, if uh, if I have a friend who stubs their toe and says a curse word, I'm not going to say anything about that, but if I hear them dropping curse words all throughout the day, eventually I might sit down over coffee and just say, hey, why... Uh, why is your mouth so dirty? If the Bible would command us to let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth, why, why does that not seem to be the case with you? So I'm doing it over time, over pattern. They know if they stub their toe and they say a curse word because they're mad. They typically know that's wrong, so I don't need to say anything. But if it's a pattern, it's one of these things where it's really high-handed sin, right? Cheating on your wife is different than having a, a bad thought. They're both sin, but one definitely shows a darker heart. Uh, then those are the kind of things that I'm actually going to sit down to uh, to rebuke them for. So on the one hand, some of you hate confrontation and never want to rebuke anybody, that has to die because you're called to confront one another. Uh, Some of you, though, can't wait. You're like, I cannot wait to rebuke somebody. I love it. That's not okay uh, either. And so there's a balance there in between those. Jeff, any thoughts on that?
0: Uh, No, I I think you you expressed it well with uh, there is this sort of interplay between the more egregious it is, then the less it has to be a pattern, the less overt, the less obvious, the less egregious uh, it is, then the more that you should probably look for more of a habitual uh, pattern sort of thing. And so uh, if, uh, you know, it, it doesn't matter if it's a one-time thing. If you cheat on your spouse, that is uh, that is egregious, that is public, that is uh, whatever it might be, that is going to lead to church discipline. Whereas if it's something like gossip or divisiveness or, uh, you know, using uh, one... Uh, curse word or something like that. That's, that's a, a different I- issue. And so I think what you want to do is you want to look at, uh, is this egregious enough? Uh, you know, the, the Bible says it's the glory of a man to overlook an offense. And, uh, and so in general, there's a lot of offenses we just simply overlook. Is this egregious enough to instantly require discipline? And then if not, is there eno- enough of a pattern here that I think the Bible would call me to enter in lovingly and engage this person for their good?
1: All right, number two. What is your stance on church-led boycotts in light of the fact that Christians are not responsible to reform unbelievers? So I'll I'll give you a few thoughts on this. Um, There are times in a democracy where if you are trying to raise public awareness, where it is okay for Christians to be involved in some type of boycott, some type of picketing, some type of march, Uh, Because we live in a, a, it's not a direct democracy, it's a democratic republic, because we live in a republic where people do vote, though, for their leaders who make decisions, uh, it is not wrong or bad or sinful, and at times it is very appropriate for Christians to make some sort of public stance uh, on their positions so that the laws can reflect some type of biblical morality and righteousness. Okay, so you see this with things like uh, the Right to Life March, where a bunch of Christians get together and say, hey, abortion is genocide, it's unbiblical, and it's unconstitutional. You do not have a right to, to deprive somebody else of their right uh, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so those kind of things would be okay. Uh, I don't, however, typically like Christian picketing, Christian boycotts, these kind of things. Because, one, it doesn't allow people to see Jesus. We're just kind of correcting their sin, and there's no gospel to it. It's just, you're bad. I don't like you, Burger King, because your positions or whatever it is, so I'm not going to eat at Burger King. Uh, and two, I don't really think that it works. Right, so when you say uh, this company made this decision to support something I don't like, and so we Christians are not going to go there anymore, that's like four people, and it doesn't really affect their bottom line. Okay, and so I don't think it's really helpful, but I think it's the wrong message. Our goal is not to just give people condemnation without the gospel. You know who does that? The devil right? The devil preaches the first half of the gospel, that you're a sinner and you deserve condemnation. What he doesn't do is come around on the back end and say, oh, but there's a way of salvation. And so you have to be careful in the public eye of only giving condemnation to lost people or sinful decisions or whatever without also giving them the hope of the gospel. So yes, rebuke, yes, correct, yes, follow your conscience, but make sure that there's some way where you're able to actually give people Jesus and not just condemnation. That's part of the reason a lot of lost people don't like Christianity. They've only heard the condemnation. They've not heard the oh, but you can be forgiven. There's mercy. You don't have to walk in that. The joy you're looking for is actually found somewhere else. And so we want to make sure that we, uh, uh, we do that. So those are some initial thoughts. Jeffrey. Uh,
0: yeah, I, th- I think there's nothing wrong with uh, doing some sort of boycott or whatever it might be. Uh, I think that uh, there could be context where that would be appropriate. I think you need to bear in mind that the culture at large is different than it was 60 years ago, 100 years ago, whatever it might be. Uh, we're now at a point where most people, the, uh, there are more people who identify as uh, atheists or non-religious than there are who identify as evangelicals or even uh, uh, Catholics. Uh, and so, um, so we no longer live in this sort of uh, Christianized sort of society. And so any boycott that you do could come right back. And uh, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so uh, I think uh, you boycotting Apple or whatever is probably going to end up hurting the mom and pop, uh, uh, you know, bookstore or whatever it might be more than it's going to hurt uh, Apple or Target or whoever uh, it might be. And, uh, and then I think just, just theologically, we see the church always is going to, it, the church never does well whenever they are in positions of power. Whenever they're trying to push and influence society by this sort of mass Uh, kind of by the sword, uh, they do better whenever they are going and they're in humility having individual relationships. And so I think the way that you transform society is not by trying to transform society all at once. I think it's by individual conversations with individual persons where you build and invest in a relationship with them. And I think that works a lot better than uh, simply organizing some sort of picket or something.
1: Uh, number three, here we go. If excommunication isn't very effective in the modern era due to the number of other church alternatives, how could God command something that wouldn't endure? Again, I'll give my thoughts and then kick it to you. That way it's easier because I'm reading the question so I've had a chance to, to think about it. So. Let me read it again. If excommunication isn't very effective in the modern era due to the number of other church alternatives, how could God command something that wouldn't endure? So a few thoughts here. First of all, God all the time commands things that don't endure, right? Circumcision, Sabbath, holy days, not eating pork. God can certainly command things for a time and they don't continue enduring. Uh, However, uh, the the problem with that, that line of thinking, you could make the same argument about marriage. You could say that the Bible commands sex within marriage. But there's so many alternatives, right? So you, there's pornography. You can live with your girlfriend. There's all these things. Why would God command something that seems to not work? Why would God command something that seems to not endure? All of God's commands will seem to not endure or seem to not work if you're disobeying those commands. What God is after is faithfulness. The reason we remove somebody from a church in church discipline is because the Bible tells us to, okay? It's because we're trying to be faithful. We can't actually control whether or not that person repents. That's up to God. That's not up to us. And so the Bible will constantly ask us to do things that from our perspective might look like it's not working, but that's only because we define working as practical results because we're Americans. We want results. We want what's pragmatic. We want what works. God is not about that. God is not about being pragmatic. It's not pragmatic to go with somebody two miles when they ask you to go one. It's not pragmatic not to live with your girlfriend before you get married. None of those things are pragmatic, but God doesn't care about that. God just cares about faithfulness. And so what we're doing in church discipline, we realize that it might not quote-unquote work But even if we were the only church in town, it might not, quote-unquote, work, right? Because that person could just not go to any church, and then they haven't been reformed. So the goal, in God's eyes, is not always calling the person back, because a lot of people he doesn't call back. A lot of those people are indeed lost and show that by their actions. The goal is just to walk in faithfulness, and so that's what we're trying to do as a church. Jeff, any follow-up comments on that?
0: Yeah, so, I mean, just bearing in mind the reason that it might not work is because other churches then are being unfaithful. And I don't mean that as like a Parkway is being unfaithful in other churches. I'm, I'm just saying in general, uh, if, uh, if someone calls Parkway and says, hey, you have this person who's a member uh, or this person who's been attending your church. Uh, I want you to know that they were removed from fellowship at this particular church. And the reason is because they were cheating on their spouse and they went through the process. They refused to repent or whatever it might be. And then we decide, you know what, we're just going to give them grace anyway. That is then us being unfaithful. And so the reason that it uh, is circumvented is because God's people are not being faithful to actually do the thing that God has commanded uh, Him to do. So it's not just about one individual church being faithful. It's about a collection of churches being unfaithful. And, uh, uh, and so I, I think if, uh, if other churches… Uh, parkway included. If all churches actually practice the thing that God had commanded to practice, it would actually work a lot better uh, than it does. But it's circumvented by other, uh, I don't know why I'm saying the word circumvented uh, all day long, but uh, it is circumvented whenever uh, other churches or whenever individual Christians within the church. Just like that illustration of uh, sneaking a little bit of heroin a little bit of meth uh, and so for, for individual members within the church to continue to give some of the benefits, some of the graces of community to this person, circumvents the process, and, and prevents them from actually uh, experiencing contrition and repentance, whatever it might be.
1: All right, let me give, uh, man, we've got three really good ones. So I'll just give all of these, and then we'll, uh, we'll just try to knock them out quickly. Okay, how do we know when something bad happens if it is God discipline, disciplining us or not? Okay, that's a great question. So I'll give you some, a few quick thoughts and then, uh, and then go to Jeff. The, the biggest question to ask, so let's say there's some sort of suffering in your life and you're trying to figure out if this is discipline from God or it's not. Here's the biggest question. Am I in some type of knowing, unrepentant, habitual sin? Okay, that's the biggest question. God is not disciplining you probably for some sort of sin that you're struggling with but you're fighting. He might, but probably not. He's probably not also disciplining you with some type of sin that you don't know is sin. I don't do that with my son. I don't go up to my son and uh, just start spanking him for something that he doesn't know that he's doing. I always give him discipline when I really know that he's broken the rule. It's very clear, okay? If I'm not sure it's kind of a gray issue, I'll have a conversation with him. But once he knows what's black and white, uh, that, that's when I do that. So one, first ask yourself, am I walking in some type of unrepentant, knowing sin? In the Bible, when God clearly disciplines people in that corrective sense, it's very obvious that they sin. So like David, when he's with Bathsheba and his kid dies because of that, it's very clear what's going on. So that's the biggest question to ask. A few things to think through. One is you'll go wrong in your thinking if you think that all suffering is from God uh, when it comes to discipline or that none of it is from uh, God when it comes to discipline. So avoid the always and the never. Most of the time that you suffer, it's just because we live in a broken, fallen world. Okay, Jesus suffers and he's perfect. Okay? Other times you suffer just because you're in that formative view of discipline. That's the same way with Jesus. Jesus quote, learns obedience through the things that suffered. He doesn't learn obedience in the sense that he's being disobedient, but if he's going to be our representative as a human, he has to walk in perfect righteousness. Uh, and so, uh, so know that discipline doesn't always mean that you're doing something that's bad, but avoid the thinking that it's always or never. You know, I'm going through suffering. Is this God correcting me? The answer is sometimes, sometimes. So your thoughts, Jeff.
0: Just to, I just point to a passage in James, which talks about uh, if, uh, if someone is sick, that they are to confess their sins, and, uh, and that uh, if that's the cause of it, they will get better, and uh, if that's not, then you should have the elders lay hands and so forth. And so I think that is a good text that kind of shows us some suffering, some sickness is a result of sin, uh, and, uh, and some is, uh, is not, and God has made uh, a way for both.
1: All right, so I'll give. uh, We got two more. We'll do them quickly. Uh, I'll just answer this one and then we'll get to one that I think is very, very practical. Uh, Should church discipline be used for continued sinful thinking or just continued sinful action? Okay. When you're removed from a church for sinful action, it's not just because you've done something, like Jeff said. Really, the main sin that you get kicked out of a church for is unrepentance. You're doing this action. You're not fighting the action. It's not that you're fighting against lust and sometimes you fall, but you hate your sin and you love Christ. It's that you are an unrepentant sin. So we had to remove a guy from Parkway a couple months ago, and he just said, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm not sure that I want to repent. And he just continued doing that by his action. I would say it's the same thing with sinful, unbiblical thinking if you were to give yourself over to it. Okay, so most of the time when we sin in our thinking, when we're being proud or lustful or greedy, we realize that's wrong and we repent and we fight it. Do we still struggle with it? Sure. But we know that we don't like it and we're trying to fight against it. So like me, I struggle with anxiety. Those thoughts pop into my head all day. What I have to do is be faithful to try to take them captive, to put them to death. Okay, but if someone were to continue in some type of uh, evil thought, this is why traditionally the church has excommunicated and even executed people for heresy. Right? So there's a big difference between you saying, I believe in the Trinity, but I have doubts. You're not going to get in trouble for that. If you deny the Trinity, which is a thought, which is a doctrinal thing, and you just continue to do so even though you've been corrected, yeah, you could be removed from a church for that. Jeff, any follow-up thoughts on that? No? Okay. Number six. This will be the last one. What if you work with someone under church discipline or your kids are in scouts with them? So I I think you can figure out whoever sent this question has kids in scouts. Uh, And so, uh, so the question really boils down to, we're not to Christian fellowship with the person, but what are we supposed to do as we see them throughout our day? What if it's a family member that's under discipline and you see them at Thanksgiving? What if it's a co-worker? What if it's a neighbor across the street? When they wave at you, do you just like hide your face and run back into the house or whatever? Uh, Jeff, you want to give some initial thoughts on that? And then I'll give some, if there's any follow-up.
0: Um, sure. Yeah. So I think um, uh, the idea there, again, is the Christian fellowship, the Christian uh, communion that is being withheld, and so if your spouse is under church discipline, that doesn't then give you the right uh, to say, "I'm not going to hang out with you, I'm not going to associate with you, I'm not going to eat with you." You go in your room, and I'm going to eat in my room, and because Paul says we can't eat together, no, that's that's uh, a misinterpretation of uh, of the text, and uh, and so I think the uh, the idea is that your uh, the nature of your relationship is going to then revolve around calling to repentance around those kinds of things. So similar to the way that I said that uh, that when Paul says don't even eat with, don't associate with, that doesn't mean that you can never have a meal with them, but it means the purpose of that meal then becomes uh, uh, restorative. It becomes corrective. It becomes this opportunity for you to call this person to repentance. And so uh, so I think there are all kinds of practical situations that we could get into in regards to you have kids on the same little league team or the same scouts or uh, it's a family member or whatever it might be, and uh, and I think we could walk through each of those uh, individually, I think in each of those cases, you're still going to have to associate with that person to some degree, but you don't have to associate with them as if everything is okay. And, uh, and that's the difference. And, uh, and so I think you would still be uh, amicable towards them. I think you'd still be kind. But part of that kindness is that the nature of your relationship has fundamentally changed where you're calling them uh, to repentance.
1: Yeah, I think the easiest way to think of it, if you just need like a quick summary, is this when the Bible says not even to eat with such a one, here's the idea. Whatever you're doing with that person, don't let them think that they are a Christian and that you are approving of their action. Don't let them think that you think that they're a Christian. That's really the idea. The idea is not to have any interaction with them. You can't do that, uh, especially if you're married to that person. The idea is uh, that sting of discipline still needs to be there. So don't interact with them like they're a Christian, not don't interact with them at all. So, Jeffrey, you want to pray for us?
0: Father, thank you for uh, your word. I just confess that this is uh, a heavy uh, topic this morning as we consider uh, sin and holiness and discipline. I pray that we might be a people who delight in discipline, even as uh, as Proverbs says, that it's the wise person who uh, who desires and delights and loves being disciplined. So that may that be the mark of, uh, of Parkway, Lord, that uh, we are a people who are passionate to be disciplined and to extend discipline. Uh, to others, Lord, that uh, we might uh, desire both formative and corrective discipline in our lives, that we might be sanctified and that uh, your name and renown might not be blasphemed. And so uh, we love you. We pray uh, that you would continue to cultivate in us uh, health, a love for your scripture, a love for your son, a love for the kingdom, a love for each other, a love for the lost. And, uh, And so just confess that only you can do these things. So help us as we go forth from here, and uh, and gather together to sing, to listen to your word, to hear it uh, preached, and uh, and to gather and to be encouraged. And so we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.